Welcome to this special episode of Grief is My Side Hustle, the podcast, where we talk to Anne Malabre. Anne talks to us about being a mother who's both had twins and lost twins, thought deeply about the way in which she wants to raise her children and who she wants to be in the world. This is a really lovely episode. Thank you for being here. We're still a new podcast. If you enjoy us, please leave a five-star rating wherever you're listening to this podcast now, Spotify, Podbean, and we'll be up on various other podcasting streams very soon. Thanks again and hope you enjoy the episode. I am Megan Reardon Jarvis and I am here today with Anne Malabra. And thank you so much for being here with me today. I'm delighted to have you in person. You and I have had a little Instagram presence with each other since I traveled out West with my family during COVID to your neck of the woods in Bozeman, Montana. So I know it's nice and early, but thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. It's nice to be here. Let me tell my guests a little bit about you and your work in your life. So you sent me a lovely bio and I'm just going to read it. It says, Anne Malabra is first and foremost a mother of four in Gallatin Gateway, Montana. She's also a writer, a poet, an educator in trauma awareness and nonviolent activism, as well as an advocate and survivor of gender violence. She is trained and facilitates family constellations, is a trauma support coach, and is a consultant in building trauma-informed and restorative educational communities. She is a resilient lover of life and a lifelong learner. What a gorgeous bio. I love that. So before we get started, I just want to remind my listeners, because I'm a trauma therapist and you're trauma-informed as well, that what we talk about on Grief is My Side Hustle, the podcast, is not the deep trauma story. We reference the loss, but we're not going to go deep into all of the details. And the reason for that is we can get re-triggered into trauma. So just a reminder to listeners, we're going to do a little flyover of loss. And our hope today is to learn a little bit from Anne about the loss that, that she has carried and how she has carried it. So thanks, Anne. You sent me a beautiful email. I'd love for you to just take us into your loss story. I had thought about it and this loss happened in 1995 and it was probably the most profound loss I've experienced. And it was, um, I wasn't expecting to feel it um, because it is, it's a long time ago now. And, but I lost my twin sons shortly after their birth. Um, And uh, I'm so surprised. I feel it being emotional. Um, I love it. Let yourself take a second. This is this right here. If we did no more podcasting and just did this, this is so important for our listeners to have, which is that's how we carry it. We carry it with that much feeling and that the invitation of just talking about it brings up the feelings. Yeah. Yes, it does. Yeah. What were your son's names, Anne? Ansel and Clayton. Oh, so beautiful names, Ellen Clayton. Yeah. Um, and they were born uh, at 22 weeks and uh, they only lived for a few hours. Uh, 
like the layers I clearly clearly yeah. even when it's a, a long time ago even when I have so much have processed this in so many different ways clearly um, it's still a loss it's still a loss and what we talk a lot about is you know and the and the queen just said it so beautifully is that the loss is the love right it's the it's the other side of the coin part of why people don't often don't want to talk about loss because it's painful, but the beauty that we miss when we can't, and we don't, is that it's also the love that, that we carry that helps generate the love that we do live and that we do have. I would add to that. I had uh, three sets of twins. Subsequent to these twins, I lost the next set at 16 weeks. And then my third child had a twin sister um, who didn't make it through the pregnancy. And the quality of losing babies, it's love and dreams because I didn't know how much I had foreseen their whole lives in front of me yeah. until I lost them. I had a room they were going to be in. I had beds they were going to sleep in. I had anticipated walking them places and showing them a, a creek. I had anticipated their lives. I didn't know how much they had already lived in my being until I lost them. And all of those dreams sort of collapsed in the same moment because their, their lives hadn't yet been lived, but they had within me. In grief work, we often call that like the secondary loss, right? Which is the, there's that primary loss of the actual thing, the tangible, actual thing that you lose yeah. and exactly what you're describing and people who go through excruciating fertility journeys in order to have children are often every time losing a castle in the air that they've built about the life that each one of their beloved babies is going to live. So I imagine there must have been things that were triggers and difficult separate from the loss of your babies and more the idea of what the lives that they were going to live. You went on to lose another set of twins at 16 weeks. Yeah. My, my, Next child, my oldest son was a single pregnancy and his pregnancy actually was his due date was this exact same due date a year later of what the twins due date would have been had they made it through the entire pregnancy. So every week of the pregnancy was a repeat uh, of twins. And the week I had lost the twins, I was, I, I was so sure I was losing my baby it just seemed like it was impossible. I would never be able to keep this baby. It was, he was going to go too. And, um, and he didn't, he stayed and he was born. (laughs) He's 24 now. And so did that make the process because you had, you lost your boys on a timeline and then you had a single pregnancy that at some point was clear that you were having a baby it sounds like you were afraid. Were you anxious that entire pregnancy each time you hit a milestone? Yeah. You had asked me about what had helped me, what had been a resource during the, to recover from the loss or to hold the loss or to be with the loss. Yeah. And the person who was my resource was a woman who was in midwifery school and living with me. She was giving me support and, and massage work. So it was very physical as well as caring and it wasn't that she had therapeutic background other than massage just she had presence and she had a a care for babies and for mothers she supported me during that pregnancy 
So I had this encouragement, this very female to female, woman to woman support around this very feminine process of having a baby. I had a dream during one of the massages. I wasn't asleep, but I wasn't awake, but I was dreaming. Yeah. It was around the time I had lost for his project was matching up with the twins pregnancy around the loss. And I had a dream that my two, I called them grandmas, they weren't related to me, but um, they had been my grandmothers. Uh, both were Norwegian and they had uh, both died when I was in high school. In my dream, they came and their names were Annie and Emma. And Annie and Emma showed up and said, uh, you are a physical being and that baby in your belly is a physical being. Um, Clayton are not physical beings anymore. They don't need you in the same way. They know you love them. They know you care, but they don't need you. That baby in your body needs you. So we'll take care of Ansel and Clayton. You take care of this baby. And they each reached over and took each and they smiled and they were looking at those babies. And I knew that Ansel and Clayton were, were safe and well and cared for. And it was a turning point where I was able to turn towards this new baby whose name is Isaac, unnamed at the time. And really understand that he was a physical being and he needed my physical presence at 110%. That is extraordinary. It made me think of so many things, particularly the notion of having someone help move energy through your body in trauma work. We manifest the trauma in our five senses inside our system. There's a lot of science behind talk therapy and body work therapy, the concept, and I think about this a lot in, in COVID, the concept of touch and how touch helps ground us. When you were talking, I was thinking about polyvagal theory and, you know, and I'll just say for our listeners that polyvagal theory is a theory that essentially, you know, it's grounded in science that we have a side of our brain that's, that activates us and a side of our brain that's, that calms us. And that there's this mid space down the midline where we're able to extend out for social interaction as a third way of regulating our system. So we have this part that will, will get us sort of jacked up and a part that will calm us down, but also the notion, which probably is at the base of all therapeutic intervention, but it's probably at the base of all connection and attachment that there was this beautiful, skilled person who was able to ground you in your waking moments. And then this deeply spiritual ancestral piece of people who gave you permission to focus the energy that's inside your system on, on Isaac, who actually needed the energy by, by telling you that they would care. I love how you gave our listeners sort of that description of what grounded you in that time period how did the grief continue or loosen for you in that time there was a two parts to that because one of the things there were actually three that was one of three big huge moments another was the loss of the twins i was in the hospital yeah the perinates at the time didn't speak english very well and i was in labor so put the two together you can understand that there was no understanding apparently i was offered a choice though it was definitely not clear to me, I didn't experience a choice. But the next day, my doctor, who did speak English, came to me and said I had made the right choice. Huh. 
which was not the thing you want to hear when you just lost your yeah. first children. She said, you, you're a healthy woman. You have a healthy uterus. You'll be able to have another baby. And that was also not the thing no. I wanted to hear at all. So I, my first response to this loss was fury. Yeah. I was, I didn't care if these babies might've had issues. Oh, they yeah. were my babies. I was so angry. And for weeks, I was so angry. Yeah. And a spontaneous moment, some maybe two or three months after I had a loss of them, it occurred to maybe, uh, maybe I was walking, I don't know, but um, that these doctors, this cytologist, my doctor could walk up to me and stand in front of me and say, you know what? We should never have done that. That was your choice that we were so wrong. They could say anything in the world and my babies would still be gone. There was nothing that could bring them back. And it really didn't matter what they said. That was a, a release. I could, I, my anger was unproductive. It didn't do anything. It didn't bring them back. And for some reason it had felt like it would, like, like something was going to happen with this anger that was going to rectify something. And at some point I realized it just wasn't. The other piece of that same thread was my doctor, for whatever reason in the universe, also got pregnant with twins oh on the goodness. same timeline of my son's pregnancy, my pregnancy a year wow. later. So wow. she was pregnant. I didn't know this, but at the, at the week of my loss, a year later, I received a um, birth announcement from her about her twins who had been born at 22 weeks. One had died in birth and the other she had made the choice I had not been able to make that baby and it was, and that baby was alive. Wow. And she wrote on the back of the birth announcement from one mother to another, I now understand. Ugh. I'm going to cry again because yeah. it was the, Ugh, that's need to so the validation, right? It's the validation. It's that pain. The other quality. It wasn't, this wasn't a process that, okay, something went wrong with the process, but don't worry, you can do it again. It was a human. It was humans. I was a human. My babies were humans. There was qualities of relationship that couldn't be named, that couldn't be defined by somebody else, any other than me. And hearing that unnameable essence of a relationship and the quality of the loss be reflected back in the unnameable way of, I now understand it wasn't nameable. Yeah. She understood. I knew she understood. And I knew we'll, she probably remembers me like I remember her. Yeah. Yeah. There's so, there's so much in both of those pieces. I got emotional from the note too, yeah. um, because I do think sometimes, I mean, I'm a particularly sensitive person as I know you are as well, but I also know that, you know, when there's real human connection inside of things, it touches me. Part of what I was thinking when you were talking is, is the concept around, how we hold space for people in grief. And in, in the world that I'm in, there are a lot of like lists of like, don't say this and don't say that. And it makes people very self-conscious who, who want to show up for a new mom who's grieving. Oh my God, I don't want to say the wrong thing. Part of what I'm trying to sort of get out there is the message that you will say the wrong thing. 
that we're, that when people are hurting, they will be hurt by their hurt. That's the beauty of what you just described. This is somewhat unrelated, but people often will say things to me like, oh, you know, the breakup was so terrible because it was at Christmas. If he had just waited until after Christmas, then it wouldn't have been so bad. And what I know about that is that that's just a story that we're telling ourselves, you know, breakups are bad before Christmas, after Christmas. Part of what I'm hearing in your walk or wherever you were, when when the anger kind of lets you go, and that's how I think about anger, is it releases me, it stops doing its job, it walks off the stage. Yeah. When it let you go, it let you go with the realization that it didn't really need to be there because it was nothing to fight against because you will experience sorrow because that's what it feels like. The anger is there to try to sort of protect you from the sorrow. You can just be mad at the doctor and mad at the, instead of the sorrow. The truth is if you lose two babies, there will be sorrow. There's no way around that. And so there's almost like a grace in that moment when the anger goes away. But when people come and say to me, Megan, I'm so angry. I'm so reactive. Everything that everyone does is hurting me, even though I know they mean well. I had a lot of that after my mom died and I'm not a particularly angry person. What I think is sometimes helpful is to wonder what is the job the anger is trying to do? What is it trying to sleight of hand magician style? What is it trying to get you to look at instead of? Because of course it's sorrow. Of course it's sadness. Of course it's deep, deep pain. And to have that second moment where the doctor herself is able to say, I see you, like, I see this. I don't know that that's like a corrective experience, but it is really beautiful. It was, it was very powerful. I don't know if I could actually put into words more than just the obvious of the visceral experience too, that feeling how that landed. So it sounds like the early loss was buttressed again by pregnancy that you pretty quickly after have a child. Do you have memories of trying to fight off grief and sadness during that time? Do you have, you know, did you take an hour every day and write poetry? I know that you're out in the most beautiful country that God put on the face of the earth and your um, Instagram photos are amazing. Did you find comfort in nature? Like how did, how did you manage the hours of those early anxious, sad days? One thing about the anger. Yeah. Um, that I think anger and, and, and the loss of control, the loss of choice, the loss, and which was really sort of named by the doctors saying, oh, you had a choice. Yeah. That experience of, of losing control, losing, I was a very physical person. I've been a competitive yeah. runner all my life. Yeah. Um, and I took pregnancy as a, a physical athletic event. Yep. So I didn't know when, when the doctor told me you are in a high risk pregnancy but just cut back. Well, that meant I didn't run 18 miles. I ran 12, but there was never a definition of what cutting back looked like. So when I was tired, I would cut back to eight miles. I didn't know. I didn't know what I didn't know. And I didn't know how to ask for what I didn't know. I thought I understood what I didn't understand. One of the losses was the sense of my body betraying me. Yeah. That it had always done as I asked. It had always been incredibly cooperative. I controlled my body. Right. And in this moment, I couldn't control it. I remember in labor trying to meditate, trying to 
and don't go into labor. I tried to make my body listen to me and it didn't. And it was the first time I had felt this total loss of control of my body. It went into labor even as I asked it not to. Yeah. I was so disappointed and, and I was so devastated yeah. by this um, experience of not understanding my body anymore. Yeah. And so the part of the recovery was I couldn't run. I couldn't be physical. It took a long time to recover. From, I had ongoing infections afterwards. There had been multiple problems and, you know, just uh, medical issues. Yeah. I did walk. Nature was a huge source of, of, of comfort. And I, I had to really reflect. I did a lot of journaling. I did a lot of reflection about what was important to me. I had lost a job I had really loved because of this pregnancy and was offered a job that I really wanted in the aftermath and realized I had to say no. That was also a profoundly um, meaningful moment in time when I said, I remember sitting on a window seat and realizing that as much as I wanted it, as much as it was sort of the handing over of a recognition of my skills, expertise, something I had craved. Yeah. As a young woman, it was everything to have someone to seek me out and say, we want you, you be the perfect, you yeah. know, the one we want for this job. You have everything we want. I couldn't have scripted a more of, you know, the, the dialogue I would have ever wanted to hear. I got that phone call and I sat afterwards and said, wow, how badly I want to say yes to this, but that's the person who wants to say yes, this is not the person I am anymore. That person's gone. And it was a whole other layer of grief of saying goodbye to the person I'd been before the pregnancy. Such a good and important point. We've already said the idea of secondary losses, but there's a million metaphors out there for grief. I think the reality, if it's going to be a meaningful metaphor, it has to encompass what you just described, which is, I am not who I once was. The, the one that I use a lot because it makes the most sense to me is I was not a parent until I had my daughter, but no one ever said to me afterwards, so do you feel back to normal? Are you going back to your norm? Everyone assumes that when you become a parent, entire off ramps on your highway are roads you will not be traveling. So not only do you experience that loss, but you do experience that loss with some sort of validation and support and understanding from people, other women who are like, no, I know you can't go back to your job with the same hours because people had navigated that terrain in front of me out loud. Grief to me is the exact same, which is I will never not be a primary griever. You know, I lost my dad and my mom within two years of each other. I'm on a different road. I'm still a trauma therapist, but a lot of the decisions that we made just after my mom's death are ones that I made in ways that I could never have done before. I don't care what other people think. I don't care if it's going to be, you know, disruptive to other people. If my energy is in it, then I'm going to figure out a way to do it. I feel different in my skin and my body and my relationships. You're talking about a loss and you were talking about the definition of becoming a mother. So it's like a loss and a gain that you're navigating all at the same time. What I'm hearing what you said is about the shift in priorities. Yeah. Becoming much more deeply um, anchored in yourself. That happened on multiple layers including as I, as the anger washed away, one of the 
insights that was left like a jewel in my hands was I can never trust someone else to make a decision that I am going to have to live with. Yeah. Uh, it is no expert for my life other than me. So you've been carrying that new sort of, no one is the expert in my life, but me, no one makes my choices, but me. And that primary, maybe disappointment in your body and my experience with my own body as I grow older is that yes, it still can do extraordinary things, but aging is a series of small disappointments over and over again. So I'm, I'm curious about sort of the timeline of carrying that adult definition loss and change. What is that like for you now? It became a very solid thread in my life. Definitely has been informed so much of my, my life subsequent to that moment. It wasn't like it wasn't there before. It just became non-negotiable afterwards. I had not planned to be a mother. That was not my, it wasn't like I wasn't planning, but I was in the dream job. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It wasn't on my radar. And all of a sudden it was on my radar. Like this is the most important work I could ever do in my lifetime. My kids have been the central part of my life. And I've taken, I've looked back across the experiences of my life and it's become so from the beginning, very important to me that I do not make the mistakes I saw in my own childhood the uh, mistakes that I saw when I worked in the youth at risk programs that were bound for years and years in Maine, I understood pain. I understood what happens to the disenfranchisement that I felt as a a young person. These are things that became my tenets of, of parenting that I wanted my children to have a voice. I wanted my children to know themselves. I didn't want them to be obedient. I didn't want them to see authority as anything outside of themselves. I wanted them to have their voices above all. So I ended up homeschooling in rural Montana. It wasn't something when they were little, I was planning to do, but it became more and more as I looked at schools, I was like, I don't want to do this to my children. It's not that I, you know, the schools have value. It's not against school. It was, I could do this. I could offer my kids all the learning I'd ever had and allow them to choose their own ways with my support and with my love and with my care. And that's a direct result from that moment in time was to Amazing. say, these kids are my everything. And the, the, the offering I have from this lifetime to this world. Part of what is hard in grief is people, people rush, they rush to those platitudes of, yeah another baby. And there is this concept out there that I step towards really tenuously, but it's a phrase that we use, which is traumatic growth, which is the idea that you grow more into yourself, more into your beliefs through the trauma. And as much as I sort of despise it, I believe it's true, which is because we are changed by these life events, because we are, we will never go back to being whom we were beforehand whether that's you don't get to be a blissful pregnant person who believes everything just works out fine because you've already lived an experience where that isn't the case or because you have your children in front of you and and you feel the energy and the desire to help them hone their own knowing and their own learning and their own life. I do think there's this idea that there are good things that can come from 
you know, terrible things. I think about that also in relationship, which is, yes, there are terrible people who show up and say all the worst things and terrible, awful things. But one of the questions I ask all of my clients is who's the person who showed up that just knocked your socks off with what they did. I think there is traumatic growth in relationships. My husband and I are certainly much more deeply connected since my mom and dad died. I'm curious for you're the mother of these adult children do you look to them and say, that's the gift that I got out of that experience? Do you look across where your work is now, which I know is really critical and important to you and think that's exactly as it needed to be for me in my life? You take me back to those first years afterwards when you, that question, yeah. the beginning of it. Yeah. Because I don't remember the book. I know there were books, but I can't remember what they were partly because I have a head injury. Over 10 years, I had my son, I lost twins. I had my daughter, I had twins and lost one, my fourth child. So that was over a span of 10 years. I was pregnant or nursing the entire time. It wasn't trying to recover the loss of the twins. It was imagining what would make this experience of raising a child, children. It felt like a child, for me, I wanted to have children. And so I tried and it was not easy. Clearly yeah. I had a different relationship to my babies after that, of my pregnancies. I would call them my baby maybes. My belly was a hotel six that that little baby spirits would come and sort of think about it. And often they came in pairs to sort of, cause they were a little nervous about this whole coming into life thing. And I got it. It made sense to me and that they were kind of timid and they looked at the world and said, yeah, I don't think I'm ready for this. And I said, yeah, I get that. Um, but I would love it if you'd consider staying. And sometimes I did and sometimes I didn't. It changed my relationship to these pregnancies. I was very attached. All my babies mean something to me, yeah. the ones that lived and the ones that didn't. I was grateful they came to be with me at all. I did understand my twins who were born's life, who I actually held, looked at for this short bit of time and they were my first children. Yeah. It was actually another dream I had of them looking at me saying like, why are you not satisfied with our lives? Why are you not okay? We had a complete life. Why are you not okay with what we were and how we showed up? It shifted me again of saying like, well, well, who am I to judge what a lifetime is? These babies all have come to change my life and they all have in whatever time period they chose to be with me. Those 10 years were the most formative of this and yeah. as far as post-traumatic growth of under of looking at life very differently looking at life and death very differently yeah. looking at my definitions very differently each one of my children came after twins so each one of them isaac has his twins ansel and clayton who came to be with him emma has i call them tahoe and rainier because i needed to be as courageous as high as a mountain as deep as lake tahoe to, to go through this pregnancy again and face the potential loss, which ended up happening. Emma had Tahoe and Rainier. And my son Ansel had a sister who was for the springtime. Claire is so angry that she doesn't have twins. Oh. I tell her she's got, she's got the whole group. They all care about her. <laughs> you know, you yeah. were making me think of, Anne, a lot of what I talk about in trauma work does have to do with energy and the system as it lives in your body, particularly in those early days when you're 
shocked by a loss of some kind and your brain is trying to process the information. What people talk about a lot is forgetting that it happened and then remembering that it happened and forgetting. But eventually we do come out with narratives. We come out with a meaning, a story that we have to be able to hold on to, whether it's the story of how it happened or why it happened. And part of what you're describing is the resiliency, right? The courage that it takes in order to go back into this space that can be so destructive. You have to have a meaningful narrative and your baby maybes are so that God, I'm never going to forget that. I just love that phrase. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the man who worked with her, I'm not going to come up with his name, David wrote a book relatively recently right. where he added the sixth step to grief, which was meaning making. And yeah. when I, I listened to, to it on an audio book, yeah. I, I, had a, I was running, I had to stop and just take that in. I was like, yes, that's exactly what has been the most profound piece for me has been the meaning making from grief, but not contrived but allowing that meaning to come through and being open to having meaning made. The phrase is so difficult and other podcast guests have been through the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross rant from me, which is the, the stages of grief weren't intended for people grieving. They were intended for people dying. David Kessler's book, the way in which he comes to his new understanding, of course, is that he lost his son. Yeah. An overdose. The metaphor that I often say is that you can't really know what it's like to, you know, be on the streets of Paris unless you've been on the streets of Paris. You can yeah. still study it and you can talk to people who've been there. But when you get there, you're going to say, oh my gosh, this is what you mean that the whole street smells like bread. I couldn't really understand that until I was standing there. The phrase makes meaning. I mean, I've already said it. It makes me crazy because what it sounds like is at some point you will be okay with your loss because it will take on a meaning. I just want to be careful. I wish the words were different because they can be interpreted as in order for your loss to have anything good come from it, you have to become a grief and loss specialist, or you have to open a foundation or endow a chair somewhere or something in your child's name. What I believe it means, and I believe actually David writes beautifully about this is you hold the narrative so yes. that it does not dysregulate you. It does not confuse you that you understand both what happened and what the meaning is that happened. So for my mother's death, she died suddenly and I got very ill from the trauma of that. And I came out the other side needing much more social connection and understanding and to be in the space of grief with other people in order to continue to grieve. That is my narrative. That is my meaning. And my guess is 10 years from now, that meaning is going to shift and change, which is a bit what we're talking about today is how has that meaning that you grabbed onto so beautifully early transformed and shifted and changed and informed how you live now. I like the differentiation you make there about the internal meaning versus the external meaning, which was definitely my experience was an internal meaning. I mean, it, there's nobody else in the world who's going to say, well, that makes a whole lot of sense, but it makes sense to me that my children have twins that, that accompany them. It's not about that I went and did something with the, these losses or I'm on some kind of uh, trajectory that's bringing anything to the world because of it. It was the meaning I made within myself. It wasn't like I said, I'm going to make meaning of this. 
it arose on its own. The car accident that I have the brain injury from, yeah. the reason I can't read and all these other things, it happened in a rollover at a, on a highway. My kids were in the car with me and we all walked away from it. I have a brain injury, but they were fine. The car was crushed and we all looked at each other and said the twins were in the car. You know, that was our first like go-to was like, yeah, of course we're all fine because we have twins. <laughs> we, we have... <laughs> you guys walk away from that and you have a shared understanding of how you may have walked away from it because the, the significance and the meaning of those two babies before any of your other children were born was something that you shared with them. The gift that your entire family has is this experience and the notion that they were somehow protecting you is a shared experience, which is just, yeah. that's really, that's an extraordinary gift. I'm curious if there's anything different now, anything that you have added in your arsenal of experiences that help you, you know, I just want to name them out loud because I think it's really important to teach the world out there what we mean when we say grieve, but you're talking about being in your body and using your body as a way to process energy, walking, running. You were talking about journaling, connecting to other people, keeping the legacy and the story as something that's held by your whole family, sharing that with other people, mourning them, talking about them now, years and years later. That's the way that you're integrating your loss, that the world that you entered into professionally was also shaped and formed by your loss. When we're talking about how does someone carry a profound and traumatic loss over time, we use all those tools. I just want to check the tool shed and say, did we miss any? Or are there any that in your life now, you learned something that is a newer form of helping carry and maybe even particularly related to your brain injury? The idea of what I understood and what I felt from the understanding level, I did a lot of work Yeah, um, and, and what I felt also happened serendipitously to get attended to because of this woman, Marguerite, my midwife friend, who's still a really dear friend that happened yeah. with the brain injury where I have lost pieces of my left hemisphere period. Yeah. And it, I would have known to say this before, but now I actually live it that Processing through the right hemisphere is the processing of the, the, the implicit, the body, the, the, how you felt, the things that you can't name, the things that, that you don't understand. I didn't write a lot of poetry before the head injury. It's all like, you know, it's not all I can write. I write prose, but they're, they are more poetic than prose. It is the painting of, in, with words or um, art and having the art talk to me. What do you have to say to me? thing that I drew. Um, what are you trying to tell me? What am I trying to tell myself? It is this sort of going laterally in a different direction than, than thinking in order to find out what's happening. That's amazing. I hadn't really thought about that till you just put that forward. And I just want to say this for the listeners so that it's clear that this concept, which Anne and I are not making up, it's well studied by people like Stephen Porges, that the right brain versus the left brain have alternate functionings. The left brain is the one that most people like to be in, which is the making meaning and translating and heavy thinking and, 
and processing. Those are our analytics. And on the right brain, that's all of our instincts and all of our creative and all, well, I'm not going to say all, but But what you're describing is having a left brain injury means that your right brain is doing more of the communication is giving you literally more information than the left brain is able to. And that that's a different way of just being in your body and coming to understand yourself, which is super fascinating. You have a different experience inside your body because of a trauma but that, yeah. that right brain messaging, which we think of again, just for the listeners as more instinctive and, and less gobbled with all of the extra stuff. Yes. What I don't have right now is like the nuance, which is very fascinating to have studied neurobiology and then have a head injury. Um, <laughs> I can't imagine. I can walk, I can have a conversation with you like we have had, and I can maybe have said something that was out of an uh, alignment with something or, or felt overly vulnerable or overly exposing, which I don't believe has happened, but had, I would leave this conversation without the idea that that Mm -hmm. happened. I would have the feeling that it happened and I'd have to go with the feeling. I wouldn't know what the feeling was. I have to sit with the feeling and it would, the feeling would tell me eventually that, oh, it's something I have the feelings, but not the thoughts. That's amazing. I mean, it really make you think of like a little child, right? Like you have a a little fussy something that wants your attention, even though it can't explain itself to you. When my mom had been sick for a little while, we had been up in Maine. And then I came back here, got my kids, went back up to Cape Cod where she was. She was definitely ill, but not the kind of ill that you would expect her to die. Or at least I was not aware of that. When I look back, the odd conversations, we had this whole conversation about where were the funeral homes when we were in Maine. There were things that to me feel like if it was a movie, people would say, take that conversation out. It's too, it's too much of an obvious harbinger of something bad to come. But when I, I was driving with my children to go pick up a cousin in Boston, and when the car stopped, I had the sensation of water breaking inside my body which was how I knew she died. I knew I had a very clear 100% she died. Actually, the phrase was she's dead. And I called my husband who was back at the house and said, have you seen my mom? And he said, no, I haven't seen her today. And I said, I need you to go in her room. I think she's dead. And she was dead. And the week previous, when my son had been in England, my youngest, he was having really terrible, terrible trouble sleeping. He kept saying to my husband, I wasn't there that, he was afraid someone he loved was going to die. This is the week before my mom did die. And then when she died, I mean, he was pretty little. He said, I feel better in my stomach. It must've just been that Nana was going to die. Yeah. I have come to understand through studying trauma that we know things we could not possibly know. And I understand that to be energy. And I, when people say, I saw my dad as a bird. I alternately hate that. And I'm like, yeah, no, I believe you. I hundred percent know that's true as well. And there are just too many stories and we can talk about it from the neuroscience perspective, which is that's where our intuition comes on that right side of our brain. And from the spiritual perspective, which is energy is not really destroyed. It goes out into the world somehow. So why wouldn't it collect near us when we need it? I'm not sure I have that concept of heaven, but I definitely believe that the energy stays with us 
I'm so grateful for your time. And I hope we talk so much more. If people are interested in knowing more um, about how you think and work, do you want to just let them know how they might do that? Right now, I only have my email. I'm doing workshops on uh, internalized patriarchy. I hope to do more. I'm sort of testing my capacity post-injury. I'm doing a lot of writing and hopefully that will get out there too. Well, great. If anything you want to share with me at any point, I'll keep it out there for people who are wanting to hear more from you. We're going to stay connected. I'm going to want to hear so much more about your work and we'll see each other on the boards, but I really am grateful for your contribution. It was really beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Well, thank you. All right. I'm so enjoying getting to know you. Thank you, Anne. Take care. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.